Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Our guest in this episode was called to the Bar of England and Wales in 1972, took silk in 1991 and retired from practice in 2019, although he continues to sit as a recorder of the Crown Court. He was treasurer of Gray's Inn in 2019. He has taken part in more than 100 murder trials, working on high-profile cases such as the shooting of Jill Dando and securing the acquittal of David Duckenfield on charges of manslaughter, the police officer in charge at Hillsborough Football Stadium. We extend a warm welcome to the author of Under the Wig, William Clegg QC. Well, it's a great pleasure to be able to talk with you today. Thank you for giving up your time to speak with us. Firstly, you have a lifetime's experience in the courts. Uh, may we start with the backlog of outstanding cases in our criminal justice system? We're told it stands at something like 60,000 cases in the Crown Court and approaches 350,000 in the Magistrates' Courts. I wonder how justice is going to be done in some of these cases where there are lengthy delays before the case is eventually called on for trial. Do you have any views about this and how this backlog can be tackled? Well, I certainly do have some views about it. The criminal justice system is in crisis and this backlog is undoubtedly uh, resulting in people waiting far too long for sentence and for trial. And that is to the huge disadvantage of both uh, victims and those accused of crime. When sitting recently in the Crown Court as a recorder, I've had to sentence people who pleaded guilty over a year ago to offences in the Magistrates Court and were sent up for sentence. But because of the pandemic, that has been delayed. And the old phrase, justice delayed is justice denied, very much applies in those cases. It's very difficult to punish somebody for something that they did 18 months ago and admitted 18 months ago and have then uh, had it hanging over their heads for all that time when they've had to get on with their life. Then some trials are taking up to two years to take place, aren't they? Oh, and, and more, and more. I'm doing one that is a hangover from before I retired that I said at the time I would not um, abandon any client I had. And that trial has been put off from 2019 to later this year, 2022, and relates to an incident that took place in 2018. So that's four years. And that's ridiculous for defendants and for witnesses and victims, isn't it? it, it, it it's, it's absurd. I mean, in November, the Under Secretary of State for Justice told the House of Commons that spending review, which provided £477 million for criminal justice, would enable the Crown Court backlog to be reduced to 53,000 by 2025. Even the Lord Chief Justice conceded a few days later that was not much. It's very little progress, and 53,000 strikes me as still being a lamentably low objective. Do you see any way forward with this? It, it is very difficult. Of course, the, the, the problem um, is not of the lawyers making, and it's not all down to COVID either. This was a problem before the pandemic, and the pandemic just exacerbated it. And it has its roots in 
underfunding before the pandemic and courts were empty because there was no money available to pay a judge to go into that court and sit and no money to have an usher or a clerk. So court centers of six courts were sitting only four. And this has been going on for many months before the pandemic. It's not improved now, has it really? There are attempts to improve it because of the need to have people socially distanced. It was not possible for all courts to sit with juries after the immediate lockdown ended. And um, in many courts, uh, you needed two courtrooms to do one big trial. So that reduced the capacity of the court by 50% overall. In addition to that, jury retiring rooms are too small to allow people to socially distance in them. So they're having to either use other larger rooms in the building or again, reduce the number of juries so that um, they can all retire safely when it comes to deciding the verdict. So these are problems. They've tried to set up some Nightingale courts. Some have been set up and doubtless they will help a bit, but there's very few of them. Do you see the Crown prosecution reaching a stage where it's going to be dropping cases in order to ease this backlog? I, I think they're already doing it. The cases they are dropping, though, should probably never have been brought in the first place. There is slightly more rigorous approach being given now to old cases to see whether it really is in the public interest to try some minor case many years after the alleged crime took place. And we are seeing a, a more rigorous approach to that, which is a good thing in, in my view. But I don't think there's any move to drop cases that are serious or, or where there is clear evidence of a defendant's guilt. Okay, thank you. I wonder if we can uh, move on to the sentencing powers of magistrates. This has been on the statute book since 2003, but there is now a proposal to implement provisions of that act, which will enable magistrates to increase sentences for either way offences to 12 months imprisonment. Do you consider that to be a good move? And secondly, is it likely to assist the backlog problem? Um, I I think it's probably um, a good move. Magistrates are far more professional than they were. Many of them are, in fact, professional judges sitting full time. And um, those courts where there are lay magistrates have much better training than they did historically. Um, And of course, there is always the right of appeal for somebody who has suffered a sentence that is considered by them to be unjust to the Crown Court for review. So I think it probably is um, a good move. Whether it will have any significant uh, effect on the backlog, I rather doubt. Indeed, one of the areas that gives courts most concern is the backlog of appeals from the magistrate's court to the Crown Court, where only last week I had to deal with somebody who had pleaded guilty in the magistrate's court, had to wait nine months for his case to be listed in the Crown Court. And this change will only increase that potential delay. So I would be surprised if it significantly reduced the backlog. It might also, I take it, increase the number of appeals against conviction in the magistrate's court. And of course, the procedure in the Crown Court is a complete retrial in those circumstances, isn't it? It it is, and, and it would inevitably have that effect. And I suspect very much increase the appeals against sentence that um, 
do take um, maybe half an hour or 45 minutes each. So that brings us naturally, I think, to legal aid cuts and the effect they're having on the ability of defendants to get proper representation on the one hand, and young barristers achieving inadequate remuneration on the other, although I think they're really two sides of the same coin. What effect do you think this is having on the rule of law in this country? It, it goes very deep into what we regard as important in our society. When I was in practice, I travelled quite extensively to third world countries and other jurisdictions and saw how their courts operated. And I was very impressed that the poorer the country, the more spick, span and smart they made sure their courtrooms were and the more pride they had in their system of justice. Our courtrooms are a disgrace. They have not been maintained for decades. Lifts don't work. Lavatories are blocked. Carpets are threadbare. Roofs leak. None of that do you find in the third world, where everything is spick and span and maintained well. And it, it is that attitude that somehow puts justice at the very bottom of the priorities that in my view, strike um, at the attitude, well, um, there are no votes in making sure that criminals get a good defence, um, and there are no votes in making sure fat lawyers get large salaries. The truth is, lawyers doing legal aid do not get fat salaries, and young barristers are very poorly paid, if you work it out, really, not even um, in some cases as much as the minimum wage for a day's work. Some of the fees are remarkably low, aren't they? They are staggeringly low. I mean, they're an insult. But um, there is a huge commitment amongst the young barristers to keep the system going. And it is, when all said and done, a very satisfying and fulfilling job, very interesting, and one that I certainly loved for 50 years. Yes, I think any of us who've been in the criminal courts as advocates would, would absolutely agree with that. I was going to say against this background, how do you see the future of the bar evolving? I'm sure there will always be a need for highly effective advocates, but do you see them being drawn away from the criminal bar and into other more remunerative areas? I don't think so. Oddly enough, the attraction of the criminal bar does remain high. And Although the number of people trying to get pupillage in criminal chambers has fallen, there are still hundreds of applicants for each pupillage in criminal chambers. Pupillage being, of course, the sort of training that every barrister has to undergo before they're um, able to practice unsupervised. In my own chambers, we used to have nearly 600 applicants for, um, for pupillages. That's now fallen to about 400. But there are still young men and women who see the criminal bar as their future. And um, my advice has always been that if you really, really want to do that sort of work, then, then you should embrace it and do it. Because there's nothing more satisfying, surely, than working in a job that you actually enjoy. Not many people have that luxury. And I think Barristers have that opportunity to do so. But on a more practical level, my advice to young barristers is if you're doing criminal law, try and develop a small specialization that will 
provide you with additional income that will effectively subsidize your legal aid rates. And um, I have in mind, for example, doing extradition, health and safety, regulatory work, that sort of thing, which um, my chambers has moved into doing um, a great deal. And that mitigates the impact of the low legal aid rates, but that is not available to all barristers by any means. So far as the public are concerned, do you see any danger of a two-tier system evolving? Those who can afford it and those who can't? Well, there is already a two-tier system, in fact, and to some extent, always has been. There is um, no doubt at all that, um, for example, in the area of serious fraud, it is very difficult indeed to have an adequate defence financed by legal aid. And that um, nearly all of the cases that I was involved in the last 10, 15 years of my practice was funded either by companies or by insurance companies because people were prudent enough to take out policies during their professional career working for a company that covered legal expenses as and when they were accused of crime. And alternatively, companies have stepped up to the plate and um, paid for the legal expenses of directors who've been accused of um, mismanagement um, in many cases. So there is already a two-tier system, um, and, and to some extent always has been. The difference is that in the old days, the legal aid defendant would still be able to get a good defence with high-quality advocates. And there is now more and more cases where one doubts whether that's possible. Lord Bingham, who you cite in your book Under the Wig as being the greatest judge of our time, and I'm sure that's something we can absolutely agree about, said that the bar is where the magic happens. What advice would you give to someone contemplating a career at the bar, particularly someone who at this stage might not be so sure of his or her advocacy skills? Well, I would say that they shouldn't worry too much about their advocacy skills because there's a great deal of advocacy training done by the Inns of Court. And they will, in the vast majority of cases, turn out very competent advocates. Having said that, the the bar is a profession that has certain risks attached to it that um, you will not find necessarily in a solicitor's office. There's no sick pay, no holiday pay, no maternity leave, no paternity leave uh, and the like. I think it's a a profession that you should only go into if that is really what you want to do. And if you think, I really can't think of living life without at least giving it a try, then you should do it. But if you are uncertain, then it's perhaps not the profession for you because it's a profession for people who are certain that that is what they want to do. There's certainly a great thrill in actually doing it, isn't there? Oh, fantastic thrill. There is nothing quite like advocacy in a packed courtroom that you know is going well. Thank you. I wonder if I can move on to sentencing. That's something which at one time was relatively straightforward, with most court users knowing tariff sentences for offences. And it seems to me it's become incredibly complex. 
crudely put, judges are now required to assess whether an offence comes within various categories in order to fix a starting point, then take into account aggravating and mitigating factors and make percentage deductions for guilty pleas according to when the guilty plea was indicated. Fixing minimum sentences to be served when the sentence is pronounced as life is another minefield. Has this complicated system actually achieved anything in your view? I think part of it has achieved um, something and achieved quite a lot. Before the Sentencing Council, sentences for the same crimes varied significantly across the country. And a person committing a burglary, say in London, would receive a completely different sentence um, from somebody who's done the same crime in perhaps Newcastle. And what the Sentencing Council has achieved is a parity of sentencing across the country, which must be a good thing. And the allocation of individual crimes into categories A, B or C is not very difficult. And there are sometimes disputes about it, which need to be resolved. But it it does achieve a high measure of consistency, which I think is a good thing. What I think is not so good is that the disposals available to judges now are complex and covered by a huge range of statutes. And it is no longer a simple process to decide what is the appropriate final sentence once you've got your uh, sentencing range identified from the guidelines. It's not just the length of, of a prison term, it's all the ancillary orders that can be made, many of which I'm sure do much good Um, ordering people to undergo treatment for alcohol dependency, perhaps taking treatment for drug dependency and the like, are all covered by a multitude of different statutes. And I think there has been a proposal, um, I'm not entirely up to date with this, to try to bring all sentencing for once under one statute. And if they ever achieve that, it will be a significant step forward. It's something in itself, won't it, if they give parliamentary time for that? Yeah, that's the main problem, I suspect. I'm sure it is. I'm sure you remember, as I do, that there was a time when far more business was dispatched in the working day of a criminal court. I wonder if we're moving in the right direction. Yes, there is no doubt that um, 50 years ago, cases were done much more quickly. And I I think that's probably a a reflection of of life generally and and, and the need now to dot the I's and and cross the T's that cause cases to be um, slightly more protracted. There is, of course, a great deal more crime in the sense of a great deal more cases than there were 50 years ago. And crimes are now being prosecuted that would never have been um, contemplated that time ago. I mean, most fraud cases that we have, the big fraud cases, would never have happened even 30 years ago. They just hadn't got the power to investigate them. Yes, I suppose uh, this is particularly true of investment type offences, if I can put it that way, insider information and things like that, which just weren't criminal offences. Absolutely. I mean, um, insider dealing and when one thinks of um, cases like the LIBOR prosecution of um, these traders, these crimes would never have been investigated um, 30 years ago. They would have not had the ability to, to do so. Bill, 
Under the Wig is a great inspiration for anyone wishing to join the legal profession, as indeed have been your remarks today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.